It is uh, June 21st, 2015. It is Father's Day. Amen. It is also Natalie Arizina's birthday. <laughs> it's Curtis's first Father's Day. He started off with a bang. He's already got two men. <laughs> Hallelujah. Go ahead, Mahogany King. Hey, y'all. My dad's in the house. This is Bobby Stevens. What a good day. Look at your neighbor say it's going to be a good day. Hallelujah. I have a message today called The Misunderstood Father. Uh, when you get a chance, Susan, put that first slide up there. Now, when we're talking The Misunderstood Father, I put three images up there that I think probably summarize to some extent how most people feel, at least every segment of people feel about their father. Some see their father as the guiding hand. They, they love him. They, they couldn't do without him. Some feel like they came from the guy in the middle whose last name is Dirt. I want to tell you a secret. We all come from Dirt. And some see your father as an unconquerable Superman. One of the problems with preaching Father's Day messages is some are sad because their fathers aren't here. Some are upset because they never knew their father. Today, I want to talk to you about our Heavenly Father because you can all know Him and He is certainly here. Amen? Uh, during worship, something came to me. Now, I know I do not strike you as the poetic kind, but I read the missionaries, and when we don't read them, we listen to them. And uh, they're better men than I am, and I aspire to be like them. And one of the pioneer missionaries that I admire the most is a guy named Stanley Albert Dale. Oh, Stanley was something. They shot him over 120 times with arrows, and he kept walking forward, proclaiming the gospel and loving the people that were shooting him. One of the things that stirred him towards the king of kings early in his life, before he, never had, before he ever had a Bible, was this poem. This is by Rudyard Kipling, or if you prefer, Rudyard Kipling. It says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools, if you can make one heap of all of your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word of your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth 
and everything in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Some of you will just glaze over. It's poetry. What are we doing poetry in church? This is the ideal human. It's the man. This is what defined British tenacity and grit and sent out colonization all over the world. Some good and some bad. Having said all of that, there's never been a man that lived up to it. Ever. How many people do you know that can be lied about and lied about and lied about and they never shade the truth in their favor? How many people do you know that can be praised by men but not love their praise too much? There's only ever been one like this, and that's the King of Kings. What, what Mr. Kipling was talking about was Jesus. Can you imagine doing your life's work and entrusting it to 11 scared Jewish boys? Some of whom believed and some of whom doubted when you appeared before them resurrected. Can you imagine watching the church age where the kingdom would swell and then it would be turned into a circus and all pass away and then it would have to start again? Talk about risking it all on one game of pitch and toss. And he never seems to mourn about his loss. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? None of us live up to this ideal. I want to talk to you today from a father's heart for a few minutes. And there's a reason. I've noticed on Mother's Day, even if your mother was a wench, everybody's got kind things to say about mom. Now, I hope your mama wasn't a wench. Not the thing on the front of your truck, a a derogatory term for a servant. But on Father's Day, people feel free to... Criticize dad's motives, impugn his character, talk about what he is, what he's not, all of those things. On Mother's Day, it's all glossy. I understand. That's the fairer sex. That's the delicate uh, of the two pairings. And I hope you think wonderfully about your mama. But I want to say fathers are misunderstood. When could you spend enough time with your children and everybody would think it's enough? Hmm? When could you focus on your family and people go, oh, that brother, he, he focuses on his family enough. When do you work and it's hard enough? You know, everybody's full of criticism for daddies. I've even heard criticism of men in the room. We dealt with some of that last week. I think you're excellent fathers. If you weren't, you know me, I would tell you. You love your children. You spend time with them. It's difficult to go to war. And to come home with a gentle hand. It is difficult to be both a provider, a protector, and a priest. And all fathers have to be all three. And some do well in one area and fail in two. Others do only so-so in any of the areas. Our goal is to be good men. Men that are filled with the very presence of God. But I understand the misunderstanding. Because it turns out that when we look at the Older Testament, people have misunderstood God the Father. A man named Marcion in the second century. He said that the God of the Old Testament was essentially different than the God of the New Testament. That his character was different. The church ran him out of the church. They, they had no tolerance for somebody who taught such things. And today, in nearly every church in America, we treat the Older Testament different than the newer. The older is not as important as the newer. The newer is really the grace, but the older is really the fire, the brimstone. This is blatant ignorance of God's Word. It's an absolute chicanery 
as far as presentation of the nature and character of God because it's never changed. Our father is as misunderstood as natural fathers. Now, if you're sitting in here today and you have deep wounds on you because of your father, get over it. Get healed. Find some sense of admiration for the very fact that you wouldn't be sitting here without them. If you think your father wasn't good enough, let's live up to the fact that you're not good enough. If you're sitting in here today with daddy issues, we're going to get over our daddy issues today. I want to start with you in the Far East. You can turn with me to Genesis 2. I have been studying Genesis 2 so much in this Bible, Genesis really, really the book of Genesis, that it is actually tearing from my binding and breaking my heart. But I'm going to fix it. If you come out one day and I've taken the tire off of your car and made a Bible cover out of it, you'll know why. In Genesis 2, I want to read you a couple verses and then we'll jump right in. This is 2 verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted, somebody say had planted, a garden in the east. Where? In Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Okay, I don't want you to lose next time you play Bible trivia. And if you play with somebody like the Vincents, you're liable to lose. Man was formed and placed in a garden. God had formed the garden before he formed the man. And he had a special place for it. And it's said to be in the east. You can read that in the 14th verse as well. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. On the screen before you, this morning I drew a red X right there between the words Canaan and Philistines. This is uh, a map of the world as, as it was drawn in about uh, Genesis 10. So where that X is, is approximately the location of Jerusalem or Bethel. It's a big X, so it would cover both of those places. Jerusalem, the city of peace. Bethel, the house of God. The question is, if God put a garden in the east, what was it east of? Was it east of you, east of me, east of China, east of East Africa? What was it east of? Well, since God chose one place on the planet to put his throne and one place that he called his house, we're going to say it's east of Jerusalem or east of Bethel. It turns out that one of the boundaries is called Ashur. Can you see that in the top about 12 o'clock on your screen? Ashur is modern-day Syria. The border of one of the borders of the garden was the Tigris that you can see on the right side of the screen there. This gives us the idea that somewhere between the X on the left-hand side of your screen and present-day Persia, Elam, which is Iran today, uh, was the Garden of Eden. Interestingly enough, this is what most Western civilization teachers would tell you is the cradle of civilization. Every once in a while, you see that the scholars catch up to the Bible and get something right. Amen? When we're talking east, it's an important direction. I want to go to Genesis 3.24. These are familiar scriptures for most of you. If they're not familiar to you, after God created uh, everything that we see, and then in six days of creation, He ordered everything, separating light and darkness and instituting time, he placed man in a garden. The setting was perfect. Um, it needed one bit of help. The man should not be alone, God said. 
And so he made for him a helper. And there the man and, and the woman would work for God. They would rule the earth. They would multiply. They would subdue things. And that was not enough for mankind. It was not enough for mankind to trust God for knowledge of what was good and what was evil. They wanted to be more than they were. They wanted to be like God in their knowledge of good and evil. And so something happens. How many of you in here are fathers? Raise your hand. Not so very long ago, I had to whip one of my sons. Won't tell you which one. See if you can catch which one's limping. It was as embarrassing to me as it was to him. How old's too old for a whipping? Does anybody have the answer to that question? When they bend you over and whip you, they're too old for a whipping. The other day, Gabriel was walking by the stage, sitting by Mr. Charlie, and I punched him in the shoulder, and he fell over. And it seems like such a strange thing to do. I just looked at Mr. Charlie, and I said, I want to do it while I still can. <laughs> I mean, just, just saying. <laughs> it broke my heart to whip one of my sons. And it did, because... I was as disappointed in his behavior. He was disappointed in his behavior, but his behavior was not changing. And that made an impression to change the behavior. Since the whipping, the behavior's changed. It's amazing how we are not often shaped through the most pleasant experiences. We're shaped through difficult things. God had to discipline his children. He put them out of a garden. And he put them out of a garden because they were in the habit now of not depending on him for what was right and what was wrong. Have you ever heard of parents that had to put teenage children out of their house because the children would not obey their parents? If you are harboring children that are insolent towards God and insolent towards you and you think you are doing them a favor by continuing to protect them, you might open to the third chapter of Genesis in the 24th verse. In the third chapter of Genesis, in the 24th verse, we see these words. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We're going to focus on three parts of this sentence. And I'm going to tell you that although this sentence is almost universally translated exactly like this, there's occasionally, for instance, King James says, keep the way to the tree of life. There are a couple small variations. This is almost exclusively how it's translated. That is based mostly on tradition. This is one of those sentences in Hebrew that is very, very difficult. But when somebody got it, everybody followed suit just like that. I want to talk to you about the phrase he placed. After, no, let's go back. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword. In English, that sounds like God put a cherubim and a flaming sword there. Agreed? In Hebrew, it's not clear what he placed. And we're going to look at that for just a second. Let's go to the next one. The next slide. He placed, this Hebrew word is shakan. It means to settle down, to dwell, to abide, to inhabit, to be intertwined with as distinct from a word called yasab, which simply means to live or reside. 
Think of this. Numbers 35, 34 says, Do not defile the land where you live. Live as in reside. And where I dwell. That word is shikan, dwell. It means I'm intertwined with. I dwell there in a permanent way. I have a physical, tangible presence there that in some way implies permanence. For I, the Lord, dwell, shikan, among the Israelites. The word that is translated place actually means live, intertwined, dwell with. It, it speaks of a kind of commingling with the land. Let's move forward. When we look at what we think in English, he placed there. We say, oh, he placed a cherubim and a, and a flashing sword. Has anybody grow up in Sunday school in here? Raise your hand if you grew up in Sunday school. And in Sunday school, some sweet old lady that, that you love and you're thankful for because she did things like taught you the books of the Bible, she broke out a black felt board, right? You know what I'm talking about. And we have some little cutouts somewhere in Sunday school and you cut them out and you colored them and bam, you stuck it up there and it was an angel with a sword pointed towards man or flaming like that and man's on the outside like cowering, right? That's the sense that we get when we read this. We go, oh, God was mad at mankind, threw mankind out of the garden at the tip of a sword, and it's kind of like, get out and don't you come back. Cherubim throughout the Bible. That's funny that it's not on our screen, huh? Cherubim throughout the Bible. 2 Samuel 4.4. I'm going to read you a few of these. You can write down the references if you want. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Where is God enthroned? You know, in some Bibles, it says he placed a cherub on the east side of the garden. The word in in Hebrew is plural. It's not a single angel. Cherubim, anything with an I-M in Hebrew is plural. Did you picture more than one or did you... Picture only one. Most of the time, we picture one. God is enthroned upon cherubim, according to 1 Samuel 4.4. 2 Samuel 6.2. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Where is he enthroned? 2 Kings 19, verse 15, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. Across the bottom of the screen, I put for you Psalm 80, Psalm 99, Isaiah 37. You can see them. There's 12 scriptures in all, and we could pick more. The Bible overwhelmingly declares that God is enthroned somewhere. Saints, where is God enthroned? Between the cherubim. Let's move to our third phrase, to guard. And I'm going to help you put these together. We say that the angel was put there and with the tip of a sword, man was driven out and we're told, hey, get out and don't you come back. But the word guard is samar in Hebrew, a verb meaning to watch, to keep. Oh, hear this one, to preserve, to guard, to be careful, to watch over, to watch over carefully. The word can suggest the idea of protecting, preserving, or saving. Is it different idea to say, you get out at the tip of a sword and don't you come back and I'm going to stand guard right here, as opposed to saying man was placed on the outside and something 
was also placed there preserving, guarding, watching carefully, saving the way to the tree of life. It's so easy to misunderstand somebody's intentions. You could think that your father didn't love you because he didn't tell you as much as you think he should have. But does that mean he didn't love you? You can think that your father was unfair because maybe he disciplined you harshly. But does that mean that he was actually unfair or just that you think that? It's so easy to cast stones, isn't it? We're a generation. In fact, we're a few generations that nothing is our fault anymore. It's always somebody who went before us. Well, if your life is your father's fault, then whose fault was your father's life? And where does that end? I noticed that if we watch something like American Idol, and I don't suggest that you watch it, we haven't watched it in years. It's not enough for somebody to simply stand up and sing anymore. They have to tell you that they're the child of a crack-addicted father and a, and a mother who works at a pawn shop just to get by and all. In other words, I have to be so disadvantaged that if I, if I do anything good, you'll think it's better than it really is because really our parents are worse than you can imagine. Is that a familiar story? We do the same thing with God. God, the God of the Old Testament, bad God. I mean, God that just rains down fire on us. God that that beats us. God that blows us up. But Jesus, Jesus, snow white, lily, snowflake Jesus. It's not true. It's never been true. The character of our God has not changed, cannot change, and never will change. The same God that swallowed Korah in a rebellion, struck Ananias and Sapphira dead, even though he did that thousands of years apart, because he doesn't change. When you put these together, what if this verse that we've always read on the left here, as he drove man out, He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. What if it really said something more like, after he drove the man out, he, meaning God, dwelt on the east side of the Garden of Eden in his cherubim throne to guard or preserve or watch or keep carefully the way to the tree of life. One presents a God that is so angry at mankind that he put an angelic warrior there, not just one, but two, and a flaming sword to make sure that if you try to get to him, he'll get you. And the other presents a picture of a righteous God that says, you cannot stand in my presence because you have defiled yourself, but I will stand right here at the edge of the property, waiting, protecting, guarding, looking for any chance that you return to the way of life. I don't want to argue about translations today. I'm not qualified to do it. And your pastor's not entirely ignorant of it either. Learn to love the Semitic languages. Learn to love this text. Most of all, I see a scarlet thread going through the entire thing and I do not see a different character in God in Genesis 3.24 than I do in Revelation 22. I see exactly the same thing. Sometimes that actually aids you in your translation. Look at this next slide then. In Genesis 4, if man was, if the garden was already placed in the east, 
man was put in that garden. Then when man was put out, he was put out on the east side. And God is on the east side guarding the way. By the way, the word for flaming sword, lahat, never used anywhere in Scripture other than that one place and is not used in Hebrew anywhere. It's a unique word in all of Hebrew history. In other words, when we say flaming sword, it's kind of like saying uh, it was something. Have you ever read Ezekiel's description of the throne of God with four cherubim and peals of thunder and lightning flashing back and forth between them? You might describe that like a flashing sword too. God on the east side, man on the far east side. The right road in the wrong direction. In Genesis 4.16, we see the continual movement of mankind. We didn't just get thrown out of the garden we hit it in the rearview mirror and kept running. Genesis 4:16, one chapter later, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, where? East of Eden. You ever got on 59 headed towards Louisiana? You're going 59 north, right? You come up to Interstate 10, which runs east and west. And you expect to get in the right lane to go east because you're headed north. And whoever designed that crazy thing made the east lane on the left side and the west lane on the right side. And it's so counterintuitive that often when our poor friends from Louisiana, they hadn't learned to use their GPSs yet, come and visit. They call us somewhere outside San Antonio and say, this can't be Louisiana. It looks too good. You can be on the right road and be headed the wrong way. The living God was standing outside of the garden, enthroned upon his angelic structure. And mankind put him in the rearview mirror and went as far as they could to the east. By the time you get to Genesis 11 too, it says as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Anybody remember what happened in Shinar? They built a tower in rebellion to God. They said, let us not be spread out all over the earth. Let's not do what God said. Let's instead be like gods ourselves. You see a reoccurring pattern? Some of you in here have been running from God most of your life. Let's not do what he said. We'll be like a God to ourselves. In Genesis 13, verse 11, so Lot chose for Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward thee. <laughs> the two men parted company, speaking of Abraham and Lot. Lot went, you have to say this phrase very carefully, and pitched his tents in Sodom. King James' expression meaning he decided to go live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what direction was it? East. You get the impression that mankind was not interested in returning to the Lord? This is how we get most of mankind gone astray. If you've ever wondered, what about those Hindus in India? Well, what about those tribes in East Africa? What about those, those folks in so far east that you fall off the side of Russia into Mongolia? Well, what about them? I mean, they weren't born where we were born. Understand all mankind knew the truth and ran from it. In fact, when you look back in man's culture, no matter where it is, you would expect to find polytheism everywhere. 
And what we find is actually monotheism in the most ancient man. The oldest cultures in the world believed in one God above all other gods. As they degenerated, they began to worship many gods. And today, we worship ourselves as gods. This is not a blight on God's character. Just because your children don't understand you, it doesn't make you wrong. Sometimes children just have foolishness bound up in their hearts and they blame the one who points it out. My father's sitting here with us today. I flew in airplanes with him. I went on golf courses with him. I sat in board meetings with him. He exposed me to things that I couldn't have gotten anywhere else and I'm grateful for it because I'm benefited by it and you're benefited by it. And like all young stupid men, I felt free to criticize him which is really more of a mark of our naivety than anything else. Have we criticized God? Have we said things like, how could he allow genocide to exist in Darfur? How could he allow people to be hungry in northwest India? How could he allow? What if he's a loving father who's carefully preserved the way back into his presence? back into his provision, back into his protection, and we've just put him in the rearview mirror and run our own way. What if that's the accurate picture? I don't know how it was in your house growing up. I didn't like to come home and find out that the teacher had called my mother. I didn't like that at all. But I was terrified if the teacher had gotten hold of my father. Don't let the first time you encounter your father be as a disobedient child. None of us live up to Rudyard Kipling's standards. None of us do. We're going to have to trust Jesus to make up the difference. But that starts by saying, I don't want to choose where I live anymore. I don't want to choose how I act anymore. I don't want to choose. It turns out that in biblical history, what happened is that God put a garden in the east. He put man out on the east side and every chartable direction of man's movement was only east all of the time. And even when it wasn't east physically, it was east spiritually. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Sometimes you can be in church. You're in the right place. You're headed all the right things. But that's not where your mind is. That's not where your heart is. That's not what you're set upon. Even when mankind managed to be in the right place, his heart was not in the right place. Can you not relate to me at all here? Are you guys all pure as the driven snow? Yeah? Well, it turns out that there's a particular place that Jesus Christ's star appeared first. In Matthew 2, starting in verse 2, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the... and have come to worship him. Know something. Our God loves his people so much that the ones that he appears to the most, the ones that he appears to are the ones that are furthest from him. Every other religion in the world says to its adherents in some kind of way, you know what? If you work hard enough, 
Maybe you cut yourself enough. Maybe you hang weights from your body. Maybe you worship rats long enough. Maybe you spill enough blood, chop off enough heads, kill enough infidels. You will eventually get close to me. Our God says, whoever is furthest from me, I'll appear to first. He says, I'll leave 99 and I will go after the one broken sinner. Just because God's people aren't doing that doesn't mean that God is not doing it. Are not our Muslim friends seeing Jesus in record numbers around the globe? They can't even hide the reports. Now, I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. Muhammad was a pedophile prophet. The Quran is a satanic book. I have no reverence for Islam. It is wicked. It is evil. It is not a religion of peace. And if you think that Jews and Muslims and Christians essentially worship the same God, you have misunderstood your father and you may not be his child. Now that we have that out of the way, he appears to those that are the furthest from him. He sends us to those that are the furthest from him. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. How merciful is our God! He didn't just go appear to them when they're the furthest from him. He led them all the way to the one who could do something about their condition. Is that not the heart of God? On this Father's Day, maybe your daddy didn't do right by you. I don't know. If you're here, he couldn't have done too bad by you. But I know this. It's a whole lot easier to lob stones at somebody who went before you because you misunderstand their character than it is admire what you can that's good about them. Yeah? I know some men in here who are estranged from their children because their children don't know them. They don't know them. Traveled around the world with some of my friends. Swam across rivers. Been in danger of robbers. Been in danger of witch doctors. Been in danger of flooding and definitely intestinal parasites. They display compassion. Kindness, steadfastness, serious heart for God. But their children don't know it because they received a deception. They received a lie. And they sit in that misunderstanding. They sit in it day after day. They cling to it because if they were wrong, then they missed out on a good father all this time. They need it to be right to justify what they've done. How many of you treat the Lord that way? You've charged Him with error. And you need Him to be full of error or not real at all. Because if He's not, if He is what we say He is, if He is what the Bible presents Him as, then you'll have to account for what you've done all of these years. It's an interesting thing. The smartest people on the planet have contorted their intellects in strange ways to justify their behavior, haven't they? I'd like to talk to you about returning to the way. Isaiah 35 has this verse. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of... Come on. The way of... The way of... Not the way of prosperity. Not the way of church attendance. Not the way of perfect doctrine. What's it called? The way of... Holiness. 
The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Somebody say that way. Apparently in Isaiah's day, there was a way that had been carefully preserved, watched over, guarded, saved, protected, so that it could still be identified, and it was called that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. Which, that sounds kind of funny today, doesn't it? It's got a certain rap quality to it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. Say that with me. Only the redeemed will walk there. Oh, what an interesting concept. Do you mean to tell me that God carefully watched over a way? He protected it. He made sure that nothing obscured it. He even said through Isaiah in the 56th chapter, build up. Build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people, for I, the high and the lofty one, also dwell with him whose heart is broken and contrite. He watched over the way so that anybody who wanted to be redeemed could walk on it, but he would not let the unregenerate, those who were happy with their own lives, those who were happy with their own deeds, their own choices, he would not let them walk on it. Do you know why? Because they would ruin it for the rest of us. That's why. When you're not broken over your condition enough to beg God to change you, you're going to hurt everybody around you. And if you don't believe that, look backwards at your life. The times you thought you were doing the best. Is it really the legacy that you say that it is? Or when you look back, are there broken friendships? Are there lies? Are there painful experiences? Are there scars No longer talk to people and they no longer talk to you. That doesn't sound like the way of the redeemed to me. And by the way, if the best years of your life were something that you accomplished in business, how are you doing now? Those things are fleeting. They're fleeting. And they don't make us men. They don't make us good men. In fact, they obscure our need for the Father. In Acts 24, 14, we have a transcript of a trial. The Apostle Paul, Saul Paulus of Tarsus, a Roman citizen and a Jewish state official, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin who can trace his lineage, spiritually speaking, his discipleship, right through Rabbi Gamaliel. That's an incredible thing. And we have his courtroom testimony recorded. And in more than one place, he says this. It's Acts 24, 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the... which they call a sect. Some men can say that it's not the way, but the Apostle Paul said Jesus was the way. Which begs the question, the way to what? The way that God had carefully guarded, protected, preserved from the time he set man outside of his presence so that man could return back to his presence. What if the Lord never wanted your rebellion? What if from the moment that he first realized he had to give you a whipping, he was thinking about your restoration? What if he's not the angry Old Testament God that he's been made out to be somehow set counter-opposed to Jesus full of grace? 
What if Jesus is actually a reflection of him? We're going to look at John now. I'm going to talk to you about sons and fathers from a biblical perspective for just a minute. The word ab, say ab. Ab is father. Uh, it's not just a rock band from the 70s. <coughs> That's actually Abba, which is daddy. Uh, Ab is father. Bar is not the place that you go to drink distilled spirits. Bar. <laughs> you have your own homes to do that in. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Have you ever heard the phrase bar mitzvah? Bar mitzvah means son of the commandments. When a young boy uh, is showing signs of manhood somewhere around the age of 13, his father would have him read portions of Deuteronomy and carry the Torah scroll in front of the whole village. If he dropped the Torah scroll, the whole village fasted for 40 days. So a lot of pressure on the little boy, and it's a big scroll. Every culture seems to have some coming of age, some manhood ceremony. And... um if he read the portions correctly, if he pronounced the words correctly, if he showed that he understood what he was reading, the father laid his hand upon the son and said, I thank you, God, that I am now released of my obligation for my son has become a son of your commands. In other words, he would be responsible for his own behavior at that point. Are there no parents out here that breathe a sigh of relief on that day? For some of you, it came when your children were 40. For others, it came when your children were about 18. In the biblical worldview, at 13, you were a man. You just were not a very good one yet. And you spent from 13 to 30 learning to be just like your father. And by the time you had reached 50, you should be a man of wisdom able to instruct other men. Boy, our society's broken down. Sometimes you see the word ben in Hebrew. Ben Yamin, son of my right hand. <laughs> You'll like this one. Judah ben her. Judah, son of her, right? Ben also means son. Bat means daughter. These days, some liberal Jews do bat mitzvahs, uh, daughter of the commands. The thing is about sons and daughters in the Bible is they are not just yours genetically. You can be a bar, a ben, or a bot. Simply, did you ever read Song of Songs? Two of you have. If you, if you don't love the book, it's because you haven't read it. And you young people don't read it yet. Sit with your parents and read it. Song of Songs means of all poetry, this is the best. It's the song of all songs, the poem of all poems. And if you think it's an allegory of Jesus in the church, you're naive. You need to read it. You haven't really read it okay you read it you you'll understand exactly why it's got nothing to do with you in in jesus um it's got everything to do with people who love each other right i have no idea why it's telling oh i do now the woman the woman yeah i got caught away there for a minute it's father's day <laughs> the woman in it says oh daughters of jerusalem i charge you by the gazelles of the fields Daughters of Jerusalem, what does that mean? All you who act like a daughter born to Jerusalem. In other words, in Hebrew, these words do not simply mean your progenitory. They also mean who you act like. So 
if my father happened to be a better than pretty decent salesman and I show some signs of that, people might say he's a chip off the old block. Uh, that, that's, that's his father's son right there. And they mean more than you just share the same DNA or the genetic material. Does that make sense? Well, that's an important thing. And it is because when we look at John 1, starting in verse 12, we are told something about the nature of our God. Say there when you were there, John 1 and verse 12. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. If you receive Christ, He will teach you what it is to act like His Father. He will teach you what it is to live like His Father. He will teach you what it is to walk in the way. Now, if God of the Old Testament was a mean God, a bad God, a different God, what on earth did He do when He sent His Son? I, I Follow me here. If the God of the Old Testament is essentially different than the God of the New, or if you're supposed to relate to those Scriptures differently, or if they're old and the new ones are, are simply new and therefore better then who sent Jesus here? Have you ever followed this line of thought all the way through? And by the way, if God changed somewhere during the Maccabean or the Hasmonean dynasty of Israel, somewhere around 200 B.C., if He essentially changed during that time period, then how do you know He didn't change when Joseph Smith said that He was a pervert in the sky? How do you know that he didn't change when the Jehovah's Witness, Charles Russell, began lying about his book? How do you know that he didn't change when the fanatic pedophile followers of a satanic priest began advancing Islam all over the planet? Because they all preach a different God. I'd like you to look at the 18th verse. It's where I'm going to settle in. No one has ever seen God. Say that. No one has ever seen God. Now, if you're going through your mind, all the, but what about, but what about, but what about, I want to encourage you, you don't know your Bible as well as you think you do. Study it. If you've studied it for a week and you don't realize that men were speaking to angels, if you don't realize that they're speaking to the Lord's representatives, then I'll sit down with you and in 30 minutes I'll teach you what you should already know. We need to learn our Bibles. We need to. The day is coming when your tribal knowledge handed down to you from greasy pulpits and prosperity pastors will not be enough to sustain you. Have you listened to the Muslim apologists? You think the Catholic apologists of the 16th century were something. You need to learn your Bibles. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. At whose side? Has made Him known. You want to know what the Father is like. 
Jesus shows us what the Father is like. I've showed you this before, but I'm going to do it again and do it quickly as we move to our text. If you were in about pre-K in Israel in the first century, the first thing that you would learn is the letter Alf. You see it on the left, it looks like go longhorns. And you see it on the right, it looks like a modern script N. This is the Hebrew letter Alf. What is on the left is what is called Paleo-Hebrew. It's Hebrew around the time of the Exodus. What is on the right is Hebrew as it is printed on computers today. Alf doesn't just carry the sound A. Ah. It doesn't just carry the number one. It does do both of those things. But Hebrew is the only language in the world that I'm aware of that has a third meaning. It has a symbolic meaning for every letter. So an A, an alf, is a, is the sound for an A. It is the numeric value of one. And it also means to every child, strength, first, or leader. Perhaps that's why we have something that looks like, uh, Texas Longhorns up there. You know, to a kid, if you were staring at a, a giant bull, that could, that could, you could think strong, right? Let's go to the next one. When you get to bet, interestingly enough, the second letter of Hebrew, this is where we get the phrase alpha bet. Uh, Greek borrowed the very same phrases from Hebrew. Bet doesn't just give that sound that bet makes, but it also has a numeric value and it also means house or family. You see this in words like Bethlehem, Bethel. You see it all over the Bible. Let's move forward. When you put an alf and a bet together, the symbols to a Hebrew child moving from right to left would be the leader of my home. Leader of the house. And then, of course, when you say the word ab, it means father. So you couldn't learn to say father without thinking the leader of my house. You couldn't learn to say father without learning that he was supposed to be a strong leader in your home. Are we clear so far? Let us move to the next one. Hey, (laughs) y'all say it. Hey, Hey. (laughs) lift up your hands. Say, hey, hey, hey was a symbol that looks like a man with his hands raised worshiping. And it means wind, spirit or revealed. You can see how all three of those are related. Let's move forward. When you throw a hey into your dad's name, when you put it between the A and the B, it spells love. And the reason that that is, if you look from right to left, you have the leader who has got the spirit in your house, and that is love. Are you following me? The symbolic meaning of the alf is leader. The symbolic meaning of hey is spirit and the symbolic meaning of bet is home. You want to know what it is like to be loved, have the leader of your home filled with God's spirit that is the definition of love. The reason that I go through that lengthy explanation to show you that is not just so that you admire the Hebrew culture, it's really so that you can ask a question. When the Bible calls God Father, what does it say? In the Older Testament, the term for God was used 2,619 times in reference 
to the monotheistic deity of the Older Testament, usually called Yahweh, sometimes Adonai, sometimes Elohim, sometimes other words. In the Older Testament, the term father, used in a sense of father to children, is used fewer than ten times. Do you find that odd? When you look at most of those ten times, they are psalms that are quoted in the New Testament. Jesus teaches us to relate to God as our Father, the leader of our house who shows love because His Spirit is in Him. In the New Testament, we find the word Father referring to God more than 250 times. In the book of Matthew, it's there 42 times just in the book of Matthew. Now, if you feel like you're getting a lecture like perhaps you would get in college. Understand, it is Father's Day. Father's Day to some means that I got to go buy a cheesy tie. Father's Day to others goes, great, we get to barbecue today. For some, it's a sad day. You might even spend the day moping, thinking about what your father was not. Understand, whatever your father was or was not, This all began because mankind as a whole failed. You're not exempt from that. All of us failed. And a loving father put us outside of the garden so that in our struggle, we would learn dependence on him. And he carefully preserved the way, guarded it, ruled over it, protected it, so that you could return to Him the first time that your heart began to yearn for a better way. That's a good father. I can't help but think of some of my friends. They want their children. They have affection for their children. They financially provided for their children. But circumstances have put their children somewhere else and they don't want to see their father. I see every day what a good person, spirit-filled in love with the Lord, that daddy is. But his own children don't know it. He's waiting for the slightest chance that they would want to be reconciled. And he'd get on a plane He'd run to meet them. He would do whatever he could to meet with them. But they, just like lost humanity, have no idea what they're missing out on. Their lives are full of platitudes, things that they've accepted that are not even true. Oh, are you sitting here today and you don't really know what the character of God is like? I mean, when you speak about him, when you talk about him, you pretend to know more than you do. You're pretty sure that you've read the Bible, except you can't say that you've read every book. And it's been a lot longer than you'd like to admit since you read it. Are you sitting in here today and your very actions charge God with guilt like it's his fault that your life is not better than it is? In John 5, 19, we see Jesus as a reflection of the Father. Jesus gave them this answer. 
I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at a reflection of the father. It's not possible to say that Jesus is full of grace, but the Father was full of vengeance. It is not possible to say that Jesus is full of truth, but the Father is full of judgment. It is not possible because Jesus is a reflection of the Father. By the way, all children in some way reflect their Father. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, You want to know what God looks like? He looks like Jesus. You want to know what He acts like? He acts like Jesus. You want to know what He talks like? He talks like Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Do you see how insulting it would be to look at the son and go, wow, the son's so different from the father? All the son ever wanted to do was reflect the perfect nature of his father. Say, oh, I love the New Testament, but the Old Testament's just boring. Liar, you haven't read enough of it to know. The Old Testament's so full of doom and gloom, but the New Testament is full of grace. I find grace on every page. Perhaps you need eyes to see. I found out that the same way that people paint their own fathers in an overly negative picture to help justify why they are the way that they are, people do the same thing with the Heavenly Father. If I hear one more hipster say, God is love, I'm going to throw up. God is love. He's the very definition of it. And love demands holiness. It's his love that caused him to drive the man from the garden and to guard the way back so that the man could return when the man realized his wickedness. Revealing the Father as a protector. All men are supposed to be a protecting influence. All men are supposed to be a providing influence. All men are supposed to be a priestly influence. I'm looking at one of the prettiest rows on the planet right here, except you people on the end. Don't you settle for a man that you would have to protect. Don't you settle for a man that you would have to provide for. And sure, don't settle for a man that would want you to lead him in the ways of God. Don't you do it. You'll be sad all the days of your life. One of the reasons the devil has worked so hard to destroy relationships between fathers and sons is so that the son does not know then how to be all of those things to the next generation. Somewhere we have to stand up and say it stops with me. I take responsibility for my own life. From this point forward, the generations will look different. And going backwards, I'm going to have mercy because they were working with the same disease stock that I am. Oh, somebody say amen in the house of God. I want to reveal the Father as the protector as Jesus did. In the very first chapter of Mark, we don't get past the first chapter before you get this. A man with leprosy 
came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does that say about his knowledge of God? If you are willing. Like God might not be willing to help him. But don't we do the same thing all of the time? I know the Lord can do anything. I just don't know whether he will. You know? We charge God with error because of our sloppy theology. We charge God with error because we're too lazy to show faith. If you can, he says, if you are willing, rather, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you think that he actually had begun to believe that God wanted him to suffer? Oh, I believe it because I see in your lives many times. You just don't understand the way that I am. What you're doing is looking for an excuse to suffer. If you are willing, God will help you. We don't need to understand anything better. What we need to do is get entrenched in our Father. He'll fix our problems. Let's quit arguing about who's the most screwed up and just start saying, we know the only one that can fix us. It may make you feel better temporarily for us to get together and argue about who's worse off and you win the argument, but consider what kind of trophy you won. Hmm? Protector. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. The name of God is I am. And he adds to it a character trait. I am willing. I want you to know something. God is willing to change your condition. It's never been that he's not willing. It's been that you have not been willing. He's been willing since the moment he set us outside the garden and he was watching over the way, looking for our return. He has been willing. We have not been willing. He said, be clean. This is God's nature as a protector. He sees the things like sin that are warring against you and he wants to protect you from it. He wants to put separation between you and it. He is willing, but we love our sin. You hate everybody else's sin and you love your own. He is willing. He's always been willing. He's like a father that wants to protect you, but you will not quit playing with the snake that is biting you. And you look and say, I've made a mess, Daddy. This is killing me. Look, my whole life is leprous. My putrid self-pity. My indomitable arrogance. My self-sufficiency. My toxic independence. Whatever your particular opiate is. When you can go to Him and say, I need your help because I have ruined this. He has been watching. He's been waiting. He is a good father. Jesus is not just a good son. He is revealing what the father is like, that the father is willing to make you clean. 
I don't know how long this particular man had been leprous, but I know immediately the leprosy left him. You're pretty sure that because it's been this way your whole life, it can't change. And you fight to make sure everybody understands you are not going to change. And you think that defines you as unique. It defines you as weak and sinful. You know what strength looks like? Father, I hate this about me. I don't fight to defend it. I'm fighting for the courage to expose it because I know you want to protect me from it. Oh, that's the king. That's the protector. Come home every day and you don't tell your dad that a bully beat you up and you don't think that he knows even though you got marks all over your face. He can't help you until you say, Daddy, this thing's been taking my lunch money. I need your help. He won't. He requires us to be honest with Him. Jesus revealed the Father as a provider. In Luke 11, 11 through 13, He said, Which of you fathers, which of you obs, if your son asks you for a fish, Will you give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you think God has not provided, you're asking for the wrong things. You know, you think you need more money. You think you need more self-esteem. You think you need more Facebook friends. You think that you need... When man was in the garden, he had everything that he could possibly want. But because he didn't rely on the Holy Spirit of God, he lost it all. And isn't that our track record? What could God give you that you are capable of keeping without him? Hmm? Health? Are you capable of keeping your health without him? Wealth? Friends? Love? Prestige? Are you capable of hanging on to any of it? You know what we need from Him? We need His Spirit, and He is the provider. We need to stop whining and go after His new wine. We need to put aside excuse-mongering and instead go after His new wine. Look, I can be open to criticism. You're entitled to be wrong if you want to. But most of the time, the reason that people don't like me is because I will not sit in that stuff. I just won't do it. I've never seen somebody stuck in the mud, celebrating them being stuck in the mud, cause them to get free from the mud, ever. I have my eyes heavenward. I am very well aware the ways in which I am not like my heavenly father. But I'm trusting Him to close the gap. I'm drinking of His presence. I will not give up. Have you quit on Him? Have you accepted that this is just what your life is? You let the dreams He gave you die? You've given up on Him as if He is not provided enough? It's Father's Day. If you're still here, He's protected you. If you're still breathing, He's provided for you. Revealing the Father as a priest. Luke 15 is such a great story. 
In your Bible, it's called the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Whoever made that title missed it as bad as the Middle East, middle, medieval church missed so many other things. Some things we have are tradition. Can I tell you the titles in your Bible are, are, are just tradition? You know why we don't have a parable about this uh, prodigal son? Because they're all prodigal. There'd be nothing unique about that. This parable is about the nature of the father. See, you think you're unique because of the ways in which you've stumbled. And, and see, but what had happened was, you think that you're unique in the way that you've been trapped in sin and therefore you've got some kind of excuse that's different than everybody else. You're just like everybody else. But there's one who is different. And it's the father. This parable is not about a son who went wayward. Every son went wayward. When that wayward son came to his senses, say, came to my senses. Oh, in the name of Jesus, that we could come to our senses today. You don't have to be the way that you are. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men had food to spare? Provision. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. What's the way back to the Father? It's the realization that you failed Him. He did not fail you. And you didn't just do it once. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. When you realize that your character does not begin to match up to his, nothing's been wrong with his, something's always been wrong with yours, as long as you can remember and you stop making excuses. Well, he says it here. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Stay on this slide for a minute. So he got up and went to his father got up and went to his father. When you come to your senses, you have to get up out of the, the mire that you're laying in. And you have to go up to your father. When you come to your senses, we'll know it because you begin doing something that's different. When you come to your senses, the next day is different. You're through with low living. You've hit the brick wall. Repentance says, I'm not going back to that pig slop. In my Father's presence is where the good stuff is. In my Father's presence, I was protected. In my Father's presence, I was provided for. In my Father's presence, I learned harmony with God and man. Shalom. But here I am, living like a slave, eating like a pig. And what put me there? My own stubborn pride. Go to the next slide. But while he was still a long way off, say a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. The father is filled with what? He's not angry. He's not mad. He's not ready to hit you with a stick. You're guilty already. That's been done. He's filled with compassion for the one that's trying to return. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This parable ought to be called the running father. Shame on me if I look in here, see Mr. Fred, and I sit on my butt and wait for Mr. Fred to come to me. Shame on me. Why? You know in your heart that's not right, don't you? Yes. We're supposed to close that gap. He's earned the right to stand where he stands. But what would it say? Matthew Piro went to see his father a couple days ago. He surprised him. He called him on the way, but it was not a planned trip. He didn't get there till 3 in the morning, almost 3.30 in the morning. He didn't because he was doing things for you guys. He left here. We take care of the church before we do any other thing. He drove there, and do you know what? His father was waiting up for him with coffee. You think his daddy wanted to see him? I was blessed to also have a stepfather in my life. Love him very much. He's now with the Lord. My favorite story that he ever told, and by the way, his father was a scoundrel, okay? But not to him. He loved his daddy. What I remember was a sign above his daddy's desk that said, Jake the Snake. And uh, as far as I could tell, he lived up to the little moniker. But what my stepfather remembered about him was that he called him and said that he was coming from Lake Charles and wanted to introduce him to his stepson. And that his daddy went out and sat in the garage and waited the three and a half hours until we got there because he was excited to see us. That's how my stepfather remembered his dad. If that doesn't warm your heart, I don't, I mean, let me say it this way. The reason you can't call this parable the prodigal son is because it's your story. You can't treat it like it's some apparition, it's somebody else. It is you. It's every one of you. It's you, Andrew. It's you, Bobby. It's you, Sydney. It's you, Mike. It's each one of us. But do you know what else is universally true? When your heart is broken by your condition and you realize you're eating pig slop and living like a slave, and you turn your heart towards your father even when you're a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, somebody say quick. He didn't make him sit in it. He didn't punish him. He didn't say, You know what? You insulted me when you took your inheritance. He didn't say, do you know how hard life's been without you? You inconvenience me. He didn't hurt his son at all. Instead, he says, quick, bring an old crappy robe out of the closet. He said, bring the best robe and put it on him. You want to know what our father is like? He puts his best on you. He looks for you while you're still a long ways off. He has compassion. He runs to meet the heart that is broken. And He puts the best robe. He clothes you with His Son, Christ. He says, put a ring on His finger. He gives you His own name and authority. 
Maybe you come from dirt. Maybe you are Joe Dirt's son, born with a mullet. But when you are born again, you're a son of your Father in heaven and have the right to use His name. Oh, you ought to give a better amen in the house of God for that. And He puts sandals on your feet. He gives you a story to tell the whole world. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I'm seen. You know, the man who wrote that was a slave trader. He gives you a song to sing. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. We cannot charge God with error for our waywardness. Since the very beginning, he's been just like this father. I bet this father was standing on the east side of his house. Probably standing on a spot on the ground called Cherubim. Looking for a son's return. This is the, the story of the prodigal son is really the story of our father. When you say our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I want you to understand he's preserved the way for you. I want you to understand he's been watching over your life looking for some sign of repentance. Have you misunderstood your father? The reason Jesus Christ moved about in Israel and ministered to the world according to John 1.18, was to make the Father known because you had misunderstood Him. I'm not a warm, cuddly guy. I never have been. There's just one, there's two women on the planet. One's about ten, not paying attention in the service right now. And the other's just a little older than ten. And they're the only two women on the planet I cuddle with. But that picture just gets me for some reason. We sang it. It was the very first song that we sang today. It was based on Psalm 85. It was in my spirit when I woke up this morning. I didn't know what it was called. I asked a couple people on the worship team, hey, what is this song? It's called Rise. But because we're playing other music, none of us could get it. And when Matt started to play it this morning, I, I heard it and I remembered and I think it had been in my spirit because I came to a worship practice. They debated endlessly what parts they were going to sing and where they're going to stand. And You have no idea what these people go through trying to help you find the way. But Psalm 85 contains this, this line. It's about the 10th verse. It says, Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. Faithfulness could be defined as trust-grounded obedience. I trust Him, so I'm going to obey. I, I love Him enough. I trust Him enough. I'm going to obey. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. To me, that's exactly like that father standing on the east side of his property looking for his son. Whether you think of it as as far as the east is from the west, or you think of it as far as the heavens are from the earth, the picture of the father is the same throughout the Bible. He's looking for you who broke fellowship with Him 
to return. So you could be sitting here saying, look, I, I, I hear you. I'm going to agree with you silently in my seat. I hear you, Eric. And it's, it's not that I disagree. It's that, you know, I kind of already, I, I knew all of that. Sure you did. I hear you, Eric, but uh, I, I don't really know what to do. I've tried so many things before, and they all didn't work. Now you're excuse-mongering again. I thought we were going to put that away. If you thought we had the cure for cancer, and we do, if you really believed it, we wouldn't be arguing over the fundamentals of the faith. We wouldn't talk about tithing and stuff. None of you debate whether or not you should pay your health insurance policies. And tithing's not an insurance policy. I'm simply saying, people got no problem running to MD Anderson and they've never cured a single person of cancer. If you really believed and knew who your father was, you'd kick every chair out of the way. You'd run over the people to get to him. Well, it just so happens that in this building, there are men and women who represent him. In fact, the very reason that we built this building and moved to this state and set up in the neighborhoods that we did was because we were hoping that you would one day find the way just like we have. For some of us, you know, it was not all that easy. Some of us were not encouraged from platforms to do this. Some of us were not explained the Word of God to do this. A lot of us lost all of our friends and family. Some of us were thrown out of our houses. Some of us were abused. Terrible insults thrown upon. So forgive me if I have absolutely no patience for you who want to make a private decision to come back to your father. Raise your pinky in a seat. I'm going to tell you that Abraham had a call of God in our clothes. You can put this, yeah, it's there. His very name meant exalted father. His wife's name means something akin to drill sergeant which is not preferable to me. It's not what I'm looking for. But I think it was meant as a compliment in the sense that she was capable of leading. You can barely see it because of the colors that I chose. But when God put His Spirit, the letter Hey, into Abram's name, He changed him from a father to the father of the nations. When He put His Spirit into Sarah's name, she became a princess. I want to tell you, you want to know what you need? You need to get right with God, admit your guilt, so that He can put His Spirit in you. Of course you don't feel. Your heart's broken. Not broken in that it's begrieved. It doesn't work right. You've taught it your whole life to love sin. Of course, your emotions don't work right. You've manipulated them your entire life to get what you want. 
Of course, your intellect wars against this. It's been deceived by the prince of the power of the air since you were a child. And the proof of that is you've always been a liar. But when you can say, Daddy, I never wanted to be separated from you. And I'm sickened by my own state. It's nobody's fault but mine. When you can say that, mean it, and turn towards Him. You're not capable of making big steps. That's the God's honest truth. The very best you could do is a step. He runs to meet you. He clothes you with His mind, will, and emotions. He clothes you with Christ. He teaches you to take off those other things. He plants hope in you where you had it, not had it before. He will thoroughly change you. Do you know how I know that? Because I'm just like everybody else in the room. But for 22 years now, against every adversity, you cannot deny or change the fact that His Spirit entered me and changed everything about me. Those that were there, they saw it then and they see it now. And it lasts to this day. And I say, why could He not do that for you? Could you stand to your feet?